This is The Mystical Positivist, a radio show dedicated to the application of reason in the pursuit of spiritual practice and development. It consists of commentary, book reviews, interviews, and discussion in and around the local and larger spiritual community. The thesis of the show is that rationality is in no way the antithesis of deep mystical experience. In fact, we assert that it is a necessary ally. I'm your host, Stuart Goodnick. Joining me in the following presentation is my co-host, Dr. Robert Schmidt. Rob is the director of Taiyu Meditation Center and founder with myself and Jim Wilson of Many Rivers Books and Tea in Sebastopol, California. This week on the show, we present a pre-recorded conversation with Amir Freiman, author of Spiritual Transmission, Paradoxes and Dilemmas on the Spiritual Path, and a doctoral researcher on Living Transcendence, a Phenomenological Study of Spiritual Masters. Amir returns to continue our conversation from May about living transcendence and the nature of spiritual surrender. Born in 1958 in a kibbutz, Amir grew up in a small village in Israel. At the age of 17, he became deeply interested in spiritual existential questions about the nature of consciousness, freedom, self, and the whole. He served in the Israeli army and became a pacifist after participating in the 1982 Lebanon War. He then studied medicine, but at the end of the fifth year of his studies, decided to devote his life to spiritual awakening. He spent two years meditating in a Zen monastery in Japan, and over 20 years doing intense spiritual practice and engaged in philosophical spiritual exploration in the community of Enlightened Next in the United States. In 2009, he left the community and moved back to Israel. Shortly thereafter, he began interviewing prominent spiritual teachers and their students, which led to the publication of Spiritual Transmission, which is his first book in English. Amir Freiman, welcome back to The Mystical Positivist. Hello, nice to see you again. Well, it's nice to have you with us, and uh, we'll begin, because it hasn't been that, while it hasn't been that long, since we last spoke on this show, um, you have been a busy, a busy fellow um, based on uh, the online evidence that I've been able to see. Your Living Transcendence Project seems to be moving uh, apace. And so I'm going to invite you to begin our conversation today by talking about that, what's been happening, um, how the uh, project is going, and new insights that have arisen. Okay, great. Thank you. Well, maybe I should start by saying what what got me into this research, and uh, that has to do with where I where I find myself in my own spiritual journey, which is that I I've been on this on the path, so to speak, since I was uh, sixteen or seventeen. So that's forty something years now. And um, I've had some very powerful transformative experiences of unitive consciousness and around that, around that area, which really uh, changed my life and uh, continue to do that. And those remain as peak experiences or mystical experiences or spiritual experiences that kind of stand out in the in the um, scenery, shall we say, of my of my journey, and um, 
and when I read some of these sages and saints and uh, spiritual masters or listen to them, I can tell that they, that for them, it's not a matter of having spiritual experiences or peak experiences. They are on what Abraham Maslow called a spiritual high plateau. And um, so I'm, I'm very interested in moving in that direction or engaging with that possibility, which to me seems a lot more significant at this point than, than spiritual experiences. So what, what is it? What makes the difference between having powerful, transformative spiritual experiences and remaining on a more stabilized, ongoing uh, spiritual high plateau? Which, so I decided I was, going to, uh, I was going to research that and meet with people who are supposed to be on, in that state, state of consciousness or existence or whatever way we want to define it. Um, and, and since I don't want to limit myself to a specific tradition, I decided not to use words that are tradition-specific, such as being enlightened, being awake, or uh, union with God, or surrender to God. So I had to make up my own, uh, my own term for that, so that it would be more neutral. And I chose to call it living transcendence, mm -hmm. which means a state of transcendence. We can talk what that would mean, but, but which is lived rather than experienced. And I'm very interested in how that state of, of living transcendence, um, how that works in a human body and experience and relationship and daily life and different interactions. I'm hoping that by conducting, so what I'm going, so what I'm doing is I'm conducting a phenomenological research, which means not so, I'm not so interested in the conceptualization of that state and of the insight or understanding that comes with it. I'm very interested in the actual experience, lived experience of that, of, of people mm -hmm. who are said to be in that state. So, so, um, so what I'm getting from you um, and what I've been seeing in terms of some of the online postings that I've seen in connection with your, your project is that one of the ways you're attempting to do that is to actually uh, elicit uh, descriptions of pe certain people's lives um, that might uh, people who might be exemplars yes. um, of, of, of this is and and it seems to me that's um, a good strategy to to if not avoid but at least um, de-emphasize the conceptualization around what you're talking about is that is that a fair uh, assessment Yes, it is. So, um, so in terms of uh, interviewing exemplars, uh, spiritual exemplars, I, I actually intended to travel around the world for the next couple of years and uh, spend time with <laughs> such people. And then the, and then the COVID-19 came in and uh, all that had to change. So at this point, I'm, I'm interviewing 
such people by Zoom. And I hope that when that I would still be able within the context of uh, my PhD research to go and uh, spend time with some of them. Yeah. Because to me, to me, actually experiencing them as they go, go about, go around, you know, interacting with people and doing their daily chores, um, that can be much more, I thought that can be much more informative than, than a formal interview, you know, when, when all I can see is kind of the, the upper part of their body. Uh, <laughs> right. Well, can I, can I ask you a, a question just to frame this? Um, and may, maybe this forces us a little bit into the conceptual, but uh, living transcendence, you know, w- what does that mean to you? Because you've, you've, you have drawn a distinction at the beginning of the conversation between spiritual, peak spiritual experiences. So these explosive, transformative, well, transformative, I, I don't know if transformative is the right uh, action, certainly peak experience. Uh, the question is, how does that uh, relate to living transcendence and what does living transcendence mean? What would that, just in terms of your understanding of that expression, what would that look like? Well, so I, I'll tell you that um, when I started looking, reading in different traditions uh, about what they consider the highest spiritual achievement, which is not an experience, but it's a it's a way it's a it's a state of being. Um, I ran into I started reading Abraham Maslow's reports on that state and and. Abraham Maslow had uh, had a nearly fatal heart attack when he was, I think, sixty something, not not that old, and uh, and then he then he survived it and lived for another year and a half, and then had a second heart attack that killed him, and during during that year and a half, he, you know, he wrote his whole life about the the pyramid and of, of uh, needs and and, uh, and and the high the peak was um, self-actualization and then toward the end of his life he started writing about self-transcendence but it was only in the last in that last year and a half of his life that he started talking about it as his own experience and he made a distinction between peak experiences that come and go. They are part of their um, characterization is that they are transient. Mm-hmm. Um, and that we know that from research that was done, you know, starting with William James and then uh, Walter Stace in the 60s. Uh, quite a bit of research has been done on peak experiences or religious experiences, mystical, spiritual experiences. And um, their being transient is, is one of the characteristics of such experiences. Mm-hmm. And I read, so I read in a conversation that uh, Maslow had, that he said, my experience nowadays is that I, make, I no longer make distinction between the sacred and the daily or the profane, between 
basically I live I live in the presence of the sacred all the time and this is my constant experience and I can no longer it he said it has the state has uh, the characteristics of spiritual experiences of peak experiences but they are not climatic mm-hmm. so the the image I had, or the metaphor I had was he had experiences of falling in love and now he lives in a state of being in love. So that may be a, a good uh, metaphor to explain the difference between peak experiences and a state of living transcendence or what he called spiritual high plateau. So it has, like when you fall in love, there is a state of ecstasy, infatuation, intensity with the drama that goes with it. Um, And then when it, hopefully, when it turns into a long-term loving relationship, some of those qualities remain, but they become more, less dramatic, less climatic, uh, and more more um, pervasive, maybe we could say. No, it's, maybe it's not. Maybe we can't say that because when one is in love, you know, this is kind of that's everything that's happening for them uh, for a while. Um, but what I hear from from Maslow and then from the few uh, spiritual masters that I interviewed is that. Basically, their daily life, their ongoing experience is that of transcendence or, you know, like this, this, uh, this woman that I interviewed, my first interviewee, she said, my life is basically very non-special. It's, it's, uh, she used the word flatlining. Um, and if it wasn't that, it, it could have been very boring, but... I experienced that flatline with a sense of happiness and excitement that is like not about anything that's going to happen in the future, but about existence itself. Mm-hmm. So that, that would be to me like a one, one expression. Right. Like- she, so she also said, you know, I, I, I'm like a, I'm like a, a child who is constantly amazed by very mundane things that happen. A cat walks into the house and I'm like, you know, this is the most wondrous event for me. Well, you, you, you told us this story of uh, uh, Maslow and his heart attacks. And uh, I'm reminded of a story that, that uh, we've heard from uh, uh, the spiritual teacher Arnaud Desjardins, now deceased, of course, but um, he had, he too had, I don't, I don't remember what, whether it was a heart attack or something. I think it was a, a coronary event of some Some, some coronary event. And, and so, you know, the people around him called the uh, medics and ambulance. And while he's in the ambulance going to the hospital, it turned out he survived this. It was, it was not fatal um, this particular time. But he, um, he reported um, his while he was in the in the ambulance, he reported 
oh, this is wonderful. My practice has actually had an effect. Because he was, he was saying because, yes to this. Yeah, because he wasn't pushing it away, because there was no, it was, um, it took on some of the character that you're describing of, of this is just life. And it's, it was not, you know, um, it was not a crisis. It was simply what it was. Yes. So, yeah. so I, guess, I guess the question I, I would put to you is if you look at yourself and examine your own interior process, what would be different or what is the same with this mode of living transcendence? Well, good question. Because you are you are, you are asking me to try to kind of project my imagination on. Well, on... well, well actually, I'm, I'm, you know, let me let me be fair. I'm trying to be very specific because you you have decades of uh, spiritual practice uh, as a foundation. So, within yourself, uh, what is not living transcendence? Um, you see, I, I find myself, um, experiencing, or I don't know if it's an experience or the way I interpret my experience with a certain split in myself and a certain distinction between, um, times when existence itself is not only perfect, but overflowing with positivity and love and perfection spontaneously. And then it's clear to me that there is nothing to do, nothing, nowhere to go. And, um, and actually any idea of having to get anywhere or do anything or change anything is, 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 Erroneous. It's a mistake and uh, a waste of time. And other times, and the other times are more like ninety something percent of my time, where I'm I'm constantly on the move, from point A to point B, and that seems to be the kind of the essence of life. That's what life is all about: is getting from where I am at now to some place, which is in some way better or better can have different uh, expressions. And it's not just me personally, it's also kind of, I feel this motivation to change the world. So the world has to move from where it is now to someplace mm. better. And those two seem very, I mean, my experience of them is completely different. Um, the state of mind and the, and, and, and the motivation for living is very different in both of them. And, and I want to reconcile. I want to, I want my, my, uh, my, you know, what I believe living transcendence to be is when they're, when they become one. So that somehow living living in the world and being active, including moving from one, from point A to point B, 
doesn't feel as distinct and separate and different from the state of overflowing perfection. Yeah. I, well, so a question that just comes up as I look at that and relate that to myself is that, and this, again, this may sound a little conceptual, but it's uh, that the two things that you described are uh, in the realm of content, whereas the uh, transcendence seems to be uh, in the realm of that which is uh, experiences content. And so, and the, re and the reason I make that distinction is that for myself, I'm, I guess I'll personalize this. Uh, just like uh, shortly before we got online, I uh, got a, an email from my music teacher, who's a Japanese teacher and uh, filled with all of the, the contradictions and the many nuances of what that relationship is. And there was a way in which I hadn't been regarding him in a way that he wanted. And he, he was communicating that in this very indirect way. And, and so that created an emotional response in me. Uh, there was a reactive response. There's, uh, but basically there's like a feeling that just sort of sits in my, uh, as the fourth way people would say, my feeling center. But that has, you know, that's just, that's content for me. And, you know, and so if, if there's anything different about my experiences that rather than having to do something with that or to create some sort of abstract description that characterizes the situation, I'm just sort of letting it sit and, you know, it's going to process and it's going to do its thing. And out of that's going to come something. Yeah. And, and, but that's what I would call that's still within the body, a kind of an identified experience. Yeah. But what's different is my relationship to that experience. It's like, is there space around that experience or, or is there contraction around that experience? Yeah. And so, and so that's why I'm, I'm trying to get at this, uh, kind of dig at this somewhat because it's, it's, um, for me, living transcendence isn't about the content. It, it, it is in a way it's about our relationship to content and whether that relationship is expansive or whether that relationship is contractive. So the, the typical ordinary consciousness state of most people who don't explore in this kind of realm is to be very contracted around content. We call that identification. Yeah. Well, uh, what you're describing about your experience and your relationship to your experience, to me, is still. Uh, I mean, it's it's it it it. Uh, to me, it shows it indicates a, a level of spiritual and psychological maturity, and obviously, that kind of understanding is something that develops over time and experience, mm -hmm. knowing that. Um, there's quite a lot in our experience that we need to let not try to do something with it, but let it do something to us. You know, that if we try to, if we try to respond, to react to it, then we're probably spoiling or interfering with the much deeper effect that it can have on us. And so it's better to be left alone. That, that that's also, I find in myself uh, often. 
Um, uh, I, I had an interview with a uh, with a Sufi teacher last night, and uh, and I find myself, you know, talking a little bit about what I'm trying to do in the interview. And I said, I'm actually interested in the phenomenology of some of a state that is not phenomenological, which I think is what you what you are referring to. Um, yeah. Want, yes. I just, I just, I'll just jump in and say yes, in the sense that I guess what I was hearing, and I'm not sure this is what you were saying, but what I was hearing was that um, it's almost as though there's a an experience that is the uh, uh, living transcendence, but as you say, if there's this, uh, you're you're looking for. Uh, uh, the phenomenology of something that's non-phenomenological. So it can't be in the experience. So it's to me, it's like the, the content is the wrong place to look. Wow. <laughs> you're touching on, you're touching on a big, well, okay. So we are human beings, right? So, right. so, and, and, and the ultimate absolute reality, um, You know, there there was a rabbi called Rabbi Cook who who termed the who coined the term paradoxical monism, which means <laughs> that from the from the point of view of God, there is only one thing. But to say that for us human beings is paradoxical because we don't have that point of view, and we can't have that point of view. So we know that that point of view exists which is God's point of view. But how do we know that? Or what does it mean for us? There is a paradox in there. Because our because we're limited in our bodies, in our in our dualistic <laughs> mind. I mean everything in us was conditioned by the evolutionary process. And um so there is there is an inherent limitation in the way I see it. Yeah, I, well, good. Well, um, I want to take the go back to something you said um, in describing your own quest, if that's the right word, um, which which was this this apparent distinction between not moving or doing and moving and doing yes and and i guess uh, what's coming up for me about that is is that Stuart's and my teacher uh, robert daniel ennis was someone who um and i you know i lived with him 24 7 for a fair amount of time and other and and even after that really intense period ended i still was around him most of the day mm-hmm. uh, most of the time for quite a few years and what what i what what comes up to me uh, for me uh, in regard to what you were saying in terms of this distinction is that it seemed to me from observing him and what he would be doing was that he didn't make the distinction between 
moving and doing yes. and not doing and moving. But he could manifest either one um, and move between those two. <laughs> it's paradoxical use of the word move here, but... but um, uh, it seems to look, look that from the outside. It looked like... He right, 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 right. And, and sometimes he'd move really fast. Yeah. I mean, boom. And, yes. you know, he used to uh, we have the American phrase to turn on a dime. And one of the one of the one of the things that he stressed in my own training was the ability to move on a dime, not just not just physically, but also mm-hmm. mentally, that is intellectually and emotionally in particular, yeah. because that's where we tend to get really stuck um, is the emotional part. Right. Yeah. So. Um, so I, I, I'm, I'm interested how that aspect emerges, you know, uh, comes through for you in that distinction that you were describing earlier. Yeah. Well, um, there, is a, there is a term, and I don't know if it's quite the same as what you're talking about, but that's, a, that's kind of comes to my mind, is there is a term in Kabbalah which in Hebrew is Ratzov Ashov, which means going there and coming back, going there and coming back. Hmm. And, um, and I think that um, maybe that refers to the, the most that a human being can, can um, the highest that a human being can get hmm. is where there is, there is um, constant movement between the state of emptiness or fullness or overflowing perfection and mm-hmm. being in the world and responding to whatever is happening in, in the world of time and space and relationship. And, and that movement, you know, as it becomes very fast and, 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 and one, one actually moves constantly between the two worlds, mm-hmm. uh, informs one's responses to whatever is happening in the world of time and space and relations, hmm. afresh, anew. Yeah, I like, I like, I like that. Yeah, I, I but I, I'm reminded of a uh, term that uh, uh, the, the spiritual teacher Lee Lazowick uh, coined. I don't know if it's original with him, but it was uh, enlightened duality. And as a um, Someone who is trained in physics, I guess I have tended to think of, you know, at the quantum mechanical level, there's this notion of complementarity of variables. So, like, you can't determine the position of something uh, uh, without, you know, definitely without losing all information about its energy, or you can't determine its energy without knowing its, uh, uh, and that if you know its energy exactly, then you don't know its position. And... Mm -hmm. It's always seemed to me that uh, these poles of the dual and the the non-dual function in that way, that there's a, you know, peak experiences may represent literally peaks where you're uh, 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 heightened, you you have a heightened sort of uh, concentration in a particular energetic mode or transcendental mode, as it were, but the normal state and the state that uh, most manifestation uh, unfolds in represents a uh, 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 a blending of those factors. 
or or a, or a, a harmonious constant manifestation of those factors and that and that's i think that's why i have some trouble in this this idealization that somehow i'm supposed to be uh empty all the time because emptiness is always present and it, it's like emptiness is never not there but emptiness isn't uh, always uh, in the foreground of uh, the phenomenology of the conscious experience, but the uh, in- intuition of emptiness, which drives the response to experience, is always present. Or can be. Or can be, yeah. And that's what I'm saying. In, in, in a sense of what I would call living transcendence is that, you know, the ability to turn on a dime in the phenomenal is uh, is just that. That because when you're not transcendent, you're stuck. <laughs> you know, and and so if I'm stuck on something, if I'm stuck on uh, um, a an email from your teacher, an email from a teacher, or uh, if I'm stuck on any number of sort of a, internal associations that may be proceeding automatically in one of my three centers. Then, then I'm my focus of my attention is in this very uh, contracted place. Yes. But the 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 associations of my three centers are going to proceed nonetheless. Uh, you know, uh, um, what was it that EJ says? EJ Gold says in the uh, Clear Light Prayer. Uh, you know. Uh, uh, with or without my presence, the play goes on. Mm. So I can be present to it, but in being present to it, then there's there's a then I'm situated in a different relationship to the contents of my experience. Yes. So I think what I think to me what you're describing, you, you see, in different traditions they make a distinction between very refined uh, and rare levels of consciousness and experience and insight Mm -hmm. that one can reach through will and practice and study Mm -hmm. and something which is beyond that, which one can get to only by grace. And you can't, basically, you can't will it, you can't practice it, it's not it's not a result of the accumulation of all your uh, insights and experiences and, and, and different states. It's something else, and that's what and that's that is kind of put as the as the ultimate goal of spiritual life and practice, which is kind of paradoxical because, in a way, it's out of reach of our imagination of our our conceptualization, and yet something in our relation to that possibility, unimaginable possibility, I feel that, I can speak for myself, that is informing, that is kind of pulling me like a, like a, like a magnet mm-hmm. towards something which I can't see, I can't imagine, but is beyond is beyond is beyond everything that's known to me, and that's that's really what I'm looking for, what I'm interested or pulled toward. And um, 
you see, maybe maybe the term living transcendence is, is still within the uh, still within the phenomenological realm. So it's something I can try to figure out. We can try to figure out, you know, and interview each other and kind of uh, learn and, and, and develop uh, and you know, which is all very valuable and very valid. Um, but that is still within the realm of, in some way, the known, or what can be knowable. Mm-hmm. In, you know, and, 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 uh, and what I feel pulled toward, or pushed toward, um, is something which is beyond that. And I call that living transcendence, and I don't know how to, basically, I think that the best I can do as a, as a, as a 62-year-old uh, living person is, is continually engage with it. You know, it doesn't right. matter if it's through practice, thinking about it, reading about it, talking about it, interviewing people who are supposedly know something about that state. The main thing for me is to keep engaging with that possibility and be open to it or... or so, yes. so, um, so what I'm focusing on is, as you were just saying, the this last bit here was the um, the apparent contrast between effort, the effort of striving, and relaxation, and trust, or faith, perhaps a better word, relaxation and faith, and. Um, and it seems to me that that probably um, the two are complementary, and they 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 help create um, each other, and then this this something beyond that you're pointing to. Yes. Yes. Well, it's a mis- the, the the connection between them. Between these two states and that which is beyond, it's a mysterious connection because some people, you know, I interviewed, I interviewed one, one uh, teacher, I interviewed actually more than one teacher who had a transformative experience when he was a child or a teenager mm-hmm. without any prior exposure to anything spiritual. And without any uh, maturity, really. <laughs> I mean, when obviously when it then happens to somebody at the age of three or four years old, you know, there is no um, no practice or preparation to speak of. Um, well, at this then, li- in this lifetime, at least. <laughs> yes. yes. So, so that that can happen without any practice or intention and then and then people some people spend their whole lifetime practicing and aiming for that which is beyond and um and that never happens or if well, it's in this lifetime we should so should add. Well, well i guess i guess and that's what i'm kind of i'm asking i i don't have an agenda here i'm more trying to explore this because i look at this question for myself and you know, to what extent is the notion 
of this something beyond uh, itself a kind of abstraction that has no practical content. And I don't mean to diminish the the yearning or the searching for something, but if I look, you know, within myself, the again this distinction between the content of my experience and the and the just the ongoing process of experiencing are categorically quite different. And to the extent that I bring my attention to the experiencing process. Uh, I come to a sense within myself of a presence that is completely beyond the uh, realm of the content. And intuitively, in that, uh, there's a, I touch the intuition that were I to project it into, uh, you know, uh, the terms of content would be. Uh, a modes of existence that uh, uh, are completely different from the uh, existence that the center of gravity of my conscious awareness is uh, resides in, which is in a human body and a uh, an apparently um, you know organized world. Yeah. Well, I want I want to stay a little bit longer with that. Um, what you call faith. Robert and, and what mm -hmm. you refer to as being not practical um, because first of all you know as you express yourself Stuart and, and I can relate to myself there's not much we can do about the, the pull of that thing it's kind of it doesn't ask us what we think about it it's kind of operating on us in us um and I feel that no matter what I think about it, and it's not going to uh, let me, let go of me. Right. Um, so I have to deal with it. No matter you know, even if I if I, even if I I spend fifty years with a teacher who tells me, you know, ignore it. It has nothing to do. It, it's it's unreal, and has nothing to do with your life. I don't think I'd be able. I, I may be able to let go of it. It won't let go of me. Mm. Um. So I have to deal with it. Well, let me let me let me just relate that to. I mean, there's a term I like. Rob doesn't like it uh, in the fourth way tradition called magnetic center, and for me that has a kind of. Again, this is probably my physics background for why I like this metaphor. But the uh, what I like about that sense is that you know. Uh, when you think about a magnet, you know, there's kind of this orientation, a pole. And so that in me has been a driving factor my entire life. I've, there's always been this kind of orientation. That's what attracted me when I was a kid to reading books about UFOs to playing with a Ouija board and contacting spirits to ultimately finding a, a spiritual teacher and a tradition to work with them. And that still is there. We're ha uh, it's why we're having this conversation. Yes. Um, and so I don't. I, I see that as a a a feature of my nature. Uh, in however it's manifesting itself, and I 
recognize that I my actions in my life have added to that, in some sense intensified that or clarified that uh, sort of magnetic orientation. Mm-hmm. And so I don't dispute the reality of that. And I'm not disputing the reality of that. Uh, uh, it seems to function as an organizing principle in the phenomenological. That's interesting. So, in a way, you know, it's a, it's not unlike the uh, uh, again to you know think about uh, magnetic fields. You know, you you don't see the magnetic field, but you see its effect. And so I see the effect of this orientation or this magnetic center in the organization, organizing principle of my life. And so it, it definitely has an effect on the phenomenology of my life, but it doesn't seem to be embedded in that phenomenology. Yes. Well, let's, 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 there's a lot in what you just said. So we agree that that magnet is not something we can objectify. It's not part of the world of objects that we can relate to. It's a pull from beyond that. Mm-hmm. So maybe that's where the term faith comes in. It's like trusting, believing, relating to something which we can't see or, or, or touch. Okay. So, so the faith, the act of faith, is like our connection, our relation with it. Yeah, and, and faith, and let's, we need to be very clear about the word faith because okay. uh, that's distinguished from belief. So, someone listening might equate the two, but faith is more like the vector; yeah. <laughs> it points in the yeah. direction. Okay. Faith, faith basically says there's a point to all of this. Whereas belief is more of a projection onto experience with a conceptual framework to try to, uh, you know, capture it or characterize it. Okay. Okay. And then, yes. And then you said something which to me is as mysterious, which has to do with that magnetic pool functioning as an organizing principle in the phenomenological world, which is even more kind of, I don't know. I, I mean, I feel the same. To me, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's completely. I don't know how to, how to. I mean, I know different, different traditions, different um, philosophical schools try to explain the mechanics of how that works, but um, I don't know. I don't know how that works. Well, let me, let me. Uh bring in, uh, highlight another aspect of this. And I'll go back to this, uh, Stuart quoted a line um, from from a prayer. He said, with or without my presence, the play goes on. And it's something, it's a prayer that I um, actually have repeated thousands and thousands of times in my life, Mm -hmm. Uh, at least once a day, usually. and I've almost always taken the word play to refer to the, uh, the metaphor of a, of a presentation observed by others. 
but there's another meaning to the word play. And um, another way to approach that would be through my admittedly limited understanding of the uh, Sanskrit word Leela or divine play. So, um, so this magnetic principle or this magnetic, uh, the, the, uh, the effect of magnetism, of the phenomena of, in the phenomenological of magnetism from something beyond the phenomenological, it seems to me is an aspect of that or could be viewed as an aspect of the divine play. And that's why we don't, we can't, we can't pin it down. It's bigger than, than our minds. It's bigger than our experience. It, um, it pulls in things that we can't um, control. And yet, it also implies what children do. And that's a really important thing, it seems to me, is that if this is not only about some pie in the sky by and by, but it's actually about how we actually live our lives as mammals, you know, running around and doing the things that mammals do with each other. My mind just stopped for a minute. Perfect. <laughs> it's working. <laughs> as, as, as Stuart would say, you could make a monkey sound. Chi! <laughs> Chi! <laughs> anyway. This, this, well, uh, no, I, I want to. I want to. One more thing that um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. that is part of the mystery and the wonder of it is that, as 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 Stuart said, you know, it seems like it doesn't have anything to do with the practical life. Mm. Practical, not only on the on the kind of functional survival um, mm-hmm. level, but also on all levels, it has nothing to do with the, with the, with the reality of living in a body with, you know, in relation in the material world, time, space, and all that. And therefore, what is it good for? Or what, 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 uh, why should we relate to it? What's it's, the point of, of, well, of it's good. It's, it? it's good for nothing, right? It's good for nothing. <laughs> right. But, uh, <laughs> I, I, I mean, there, yes. there's a classic distinction. I'm, I'm sure you've heard this of the horizontal and the vertical, yeah. and and so the the ex, the extended world, the world of uh, form and the world of the body, and all our concepts about that is the horizontal realm. But the realm we're talking about is the vertical realm. And from a quote-unquote practical point of view, uh, uh, an ordinary human point of view, yeah, there's no practicality to it. But at the same time, there's no practicality to uh, exquisite nuance in a piece of music. 
you know, there's no practicality to uh, uh, beautifully executed art. Uh, you know, th- these sublime realms of appreciation and apperception are the character of the vertical realm. And so for many people, their focus is locked firmly in the uh, horizontal with uh, an occasional sort of tap on the shoulder from the vertical. But when we have this kind of magnetic principle functioning in us, there's a, a yearning towards going deep in the vertical. That, that, that's that's certainly, that explanation makes sense for my experience in my life. Why would I be attracted to spiritual practice? Um, you know, from the very youngest age, you know, before I even had a notion of, of practice in any sort of sense, you know, my, I was going to that realm, uh, um, as a strange little child. And so the question, you know, of living transcendence is an interesting one because, uh, uh, we are in bodies in both realms and we, we can cultivate a depth. We can cultivate ourselves in a, in a, uh, an experiential dimension in the vertical or maybe more properly we can open ourselves as a channel such that the vertical can flow into our lives and sort of permeate out into the horizontal realm and i think that's what you get what you mean by living transcendence yeah it's definitely in the direction and i i want to i want to find out that when you said it's good for nothing there was <laughs> Um, a, 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 a rush of delight. <laughs> I felt that, and 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 so there is something something to say about the imp- utter impracticality mm-hmm. of the uh, vertical movement that actually is delightful and makes it and is part of its its attractivity. It, it's saying, you know, I actually don't care about what's happening in the world, in the practical world of time and space. There's something from that point of view. The, the, our constant preoccupation, understandably so, with what's happening on the on the horizontal level. Um, it doesn't care about it, <laughs> and some part in us doesn't care about it. And that part lights up, lightens up when 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 uh, when we hear uh, it's good for nothing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's sweet. <laughs> and, but, and, and then the interesting thing to me is, uh, can I act in the world uh, with the uh, understanding that the, uh, uh, as it were, the that the world doesn't matter. Yes. Can I both can I both have it matter and not matter simultaneously? Wonderful. That's that's that to me is pure gold. What you just said, and and to me that that that's also where the term transcendence, where it points to, is is living in the world, 
of action, of moving from point A to point B, of having a body, and conditioning, psychological, you know, everything. And, um, and at the same time, being, that being non-separate from mm -hmm. the vertical dimension and its expression and manifestation uh, in some mysterious way through, through oneself. Well, I, I, and that, that, that's where I guess I, you know, I, I come back to the question, is it, is it that mysterious? Is it that, I mean, maybe it's kind of like the glasses on your, your face. You know, you look around for the glasses all over the place and you discover, oh, you're wearing them. I mean... Well, you said it yourself. You said that the organizing, the magnetic organizing principle is something that you can see its effect on yeah, how things get... Yeah you know, or get organized according to the magnetic field. Right, right, right. And they're, they're, but, they're, but, but, but that's all you can, you can only see it on the phenomenological level. You don't see that which is the organizing principle itself. Yeah, I mean, I guess I, I'm thinking of, uh, there's a, a term that Gurdjieff used that uh, your being attracts your life. And so you can experiment with this in the sense that uh, uh, if you are uh, conscious of your interior processes and can, you know, hold, you know, sufficient space, that choice arises and choose to uh, be in a particular way, then you can explore to what extent that nature of the being that you choose to be attracts a quality of experience in the uh, phenomenological. Mm -hmm. Now, why would you do that? I go back to what Rob was saying, you know, that that's, that's more about play. That's more about artistry, such that your life and the manifestation of your life is more like a work of art than having some mission of having to change something. Yes. Well, allow me to point out, though, Stuart, that your um, predication of this uh, possibility of choice is something that is not generally available no, no, very I... readily to most people. And uh, can you can you explain? I, I didn't get that. So, so in other words, I was um, making the, it sound easy. <laughs> yes, Stuart was making it sound easy that there could be this choice to experiment in the way that he was describing. And I'm and I'm suggesting that um, while that's not impossible by any means for any particular individual, people as they are conditioned by their by their experience in a body um, uh, find many obstacles to that, and so and and so that's that's one of the reasons that in in my view that that a self-examination practice is so crucial, but not indispensable, I guess, because you, you yourself, Amir, mentioned some of the, the rare persons who, who um, at a very young age find themselves able, you know, Ramana Maharshi being maybe the most famous example yes. of this sort of thing. Uh, but even for him, it wasn't easy, you know, it wasn't pleasant necessarily going through um, 
his uh, transition, if you will. So, so anyway, um, uh, the choice that I just, I simply wanted to, wanted to make the point that the choice that Stuart's uh, describing is not a simple thing. No, it's not something, it's not something that, that, um, is, um, readily attained, um, not impossible, but not readily attained. Right. Right. Which to me connects to the question of, of intention and will in, in service of how, 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 how do we, how do we intend or how do we let that intention, it's not how do we intend, how do we let that intention that is already operating on some level in us kind of inform our life, our practice, um, and, and, and have more, more effect on us than it already has. Um, so that, because, yeah. Well, I think most people would consider that they have to exercise more will to do it. And one of the things I was saying earlier is, in addition to the exercise of will, there's also the exercise of relaxation. Or the exercise or, of won't. Uh, <laughs> well, <laughs> that's another thing. But, um, but you know, uh, so but maybe this is the moment to transition to a discussion of spiritual surrender. Yeah, yes. actually, that, that's a, uh, uh, I was going to add to uh, uh, this notion of relaxation because it's something that for us is a um, uh, factors into the three centers of our organism in the, in the sense that, you know, there's physical relaxation where, whereas I may have had a cramp and if I can relax and let that go, energy can flow again. But at the intellectual level or the, the level of thought, uh, relaxation takes the form of acceptance rather than fighting, if I just accept what is, that's a kind of a relaxation. And at the emotional level, it takes the form of surrender. Well, I want, I, let's, let's talk about a few terms and terms which are related to experiences that kind of circle around surrender and try to make some distinctions between um, acceptance, relaxation, submission, mm. devotion, and surrender. Maybe these are these are kind of they're they're around the same. They're they're all playing in the same field, but they have different roles or different. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Uh, absolutely. So so please lead us forward. Okay. Okay. I'll try. Well. Um, so there is, to me, there is a passionate element to surrender, which distinguishes it from acceptance and relaxation. Hmm. Right. Uh, so in that sense, it's a delicate thing. It's a delicate thing, but, but, I experience, when I think of surrender, 
and the classical posture, you know, of touching my forehead to the ground. Mm -hmm. There is an element of love and gratitude and something comes out of me toward that which to which I surrender without even knowing, you know, it's not an object. I don't know if it's me or it yeah. or everything. But 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 I'm not passively accepting reality or accepting God's grace. I am moving toward it in my surrender. Mm -hmm. And that's I can tell you when I when I I realized it. I, I remember seeing it. I don't remember the situation, but I remember thinking like 30 years ago, I love God and I feel love for people who love God. And there is something to me very special and, and, and very moving and very touching in the expression, in human body, in human form, in human emotion, of love for God and, and, the, and wanting to surrender to God. You know, I'm using now a tastic uh, kind of dualistic expression. But, yeah. but, I think mm -hmm. but, but it, is, it is appropriate because that, that gesture <clears throat> is relational. And so you have to have something to relate to. Yeah. But yeah, and... To be clear about the terminology I was using, uh, the uh, I'm not equating acceptance with surrender, and I'm not equating relaxation with surrender. What I'm saying uh, from, you know, as good fourth way practitioners, you know, we look at the human organism as having three functioning centers, a mental center, a, an emotional or feeling center, and a uh, physical or moving center. And... Uh, the manifestation of uh, release manifests differently in those. So in, in the mental center, the, that gesture you're talking about uh, presents as acceptance. In the emotional center, it presents as surrender. And in the physical moving center, it, it presents as relaxation. And you can see the contrary to that because if I am tense, I'm holding on to something. <laughs> You know, if I uh, am not accepting something, I'm pushing things away. And if I'm not surrendering, I'm fighting. Yes. So I think to me, uh, another distinction I'd like to make between acceptance and surrender has to do with, um, with the impulse that one can find in oneself to surrender. So acceptance is 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 a passive is a passive posture. Yeah I, I don't agree with that. Okay. I don't agree okay. I I, 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 I just I just want to well when I'm using the term acceptance I yeah. I don't it to me it's not a uh a passive state. So I'm okay. I'm I'm I'm, I'm Asserting that now because I want to be clear that we're not just confusing words that sound like uh, each other. Okay. Okay. I mean, I, I'd like, uh, let me describe what I feel the impulse to surrender is and, 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 and see if that 
kind of correlates or, okay. or matches your experience when you use the word uh, acceptance. So this is something that I realized as I read, you know, I wrote, I wrote a paper about surrender, surrender in general um, and surrender to another person more specifically and surrender to a spiritual master in particular as a specific case of that. And what struck me as I read different uh, manifest about different manifestations and expressions of surrender in different different fields, the spiritual, in love, in sex, in the relation between uh, therapist and patient and leader and and and, and uh, followers, etc, is that just as there is a, a a desire, uh, uh, um, it's a profound, deep, deep spiritual desire in each of us, I believe, to be free, which means to be who we are authentically, um, be a free agent in this world and, and have a freedom of choice and express, give our unique gifts as as an individual, and bring that to fruition to and and express that in the world. So there is also another motivation or impulse in us, which seems to go in the opposite direction, which is to let go of, of that individuality and and our uniqueness and our. And a certain burden of existing as an individual in the world, and actually wanting to drop all that and be in the serve in the service of, and in the command under the command I don't know the expression of something greater than us of a greater power, and basically letting go of all of our personal agendas, fears and desires and 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 longings and just be in service of something else that takes over and guides us without us having any any say in where, where what we want and where to go let me let me jump in for just a second yes. because I, um, I I I totally resonate with what you're saying as long as that to which we are surrendering is understood to be, greater or bigger or more expansive than us as opposed to surrendering to um, I don't know a political ideology or um, or, a or, cult, a cult leader. or a cult leader or a cult leader or or I mean it could be it can be uh, very mundane sorts of things as well so so the so the uh, I'm understanding what you're saying about this, and I think you express right. it beautifully, um, is surrender to something greater than oneself. Yes. Okay. One, this, this, let's, let's explore this together, because I think that because the longing to surrender has not been legitimized in our secular modern world, mm. Sure. And has not been explored and looked at very deeply. Um, we get more of the pathology of surrendering to a limited 
and distorted ideology or leader, which to me is a uh, is, um, distortion of the original authentic mm-hmm. impulse to surrender. Okay. And I think as long as we don't make the distinctions such as the one you just made, we will continue to make th- to make those mistakes and 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 out of the impulse to surrender to something bigger and greater than our uh, small self we would we would take it in different directions that are not necessarily wholesome so so let's let's talk about what about the distinction between authentic wholesome surrender to that which is greater than ourselves mm-hmm. and diverting it or distorting it and making it surrender to another expression of ego or, or another small self uh, you know that 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 really leads to a lot of bad things in our world um, so I try to do that. I try to do that by, by making a distinction between surrender. Uh, these are just words, but, yeah. but let's, that, let's see if that surrender on the one hand and submission and obedience on the other. Mm-hmm. And submission and obedience are like cheap imitations. I mean, they can look very, you know, sparkly and uh, powerful, but yeah. they're still in a way cheap imitations of the of the surrender posture of the surrender posture I was thinking that the distinction that you made about active and passive plays here for me where submission to me seems like it is a more of a passive act Uh, it has the uh, valence of giving up whereas surrender seems to be more of a, a conscious affirming and a uh, a active uh, that surrender always has to be activated, whereas submission you sort of well, you can uh, kind of forget about. Let me let me throw in a slightly different perspective because because I'm thinking of, uh, for example, the poetry of uh, my favorite author Ursula Le Guin, and it and she often talks about surrender in terms of surrendering to the Tao. That is to say, to this um, both personal and impersonal flow that we experience within ourselves and outside of ourselves, and um, and when when we're doing that, we f- we can feel light and. Um, when we're submitting in the way that you're describing. And I, I, and I like this distinction. I think it's, it's, it's a useful one. Um, we, we won't feel light. Submission doesn't feel light. Either, either we're experiencing the power of something else or someone else, or we're, imagining that we are powerful because we have submitted to something else or someone else. And, and that's not light. That's not easy. 
So I think it was um, a researcher by the name of Taibat who, who explored um, the 12 steps of the, of the AA, the Alcoholic Anonymous Movement or mm -hmm. methodology, who said that, um, who said that in surrender, all of you on all levels, conscious and, and unconscious, kind of move in the same direction, while in submission, externally, consciously, you express positive attitude, but subconsciously, inwardly, mm -hmm. there is a negativity mm. and resistance to the movement, to the external movement. So that, that, that's how he distinguished between authentic surrender and submission which correlates with, with how you just express it. I find it, it, I find it on a theoretical level, it's, it's a useful and important distinction. On the experiential level, I, I, I don't know if, how it works. I don't know if we can make that distinction so easily. I mean, no. considering also that we, that we human beings have a, have a profound tendency to... Um, uh, Mislead, what's the word? Mislead, not mislead. Uh, mislead ourselves. Yeah. <laughs> I, yes. I mean, yeah. I, I'm thinking of uh, the notion that uh, Miranda uh, Kaplan has of uh, uh, conscious discipleship. Yeah. And there, there does, you know, like working with a spiritual teacher, there's a way to engage with the teacher that is has a valence of surrender in the sense that we're describing. And there's ways in which people submit to a teacher too. And sometimes it can be the same teacher and some people are submitting and some people are surrendering. <laughs> and, but the surrender is a, you know, it's a conscious act that one is engaging in, but one is still fully responsible. Whereas with submission, when one engages in submission, one is uh, uh, claiming or, or affecting that they aren't responsible. Yeah. Well, the thing is, again, we can make that kind of distinction, which is useful and, 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 and real, in retrospect. But, yeah. um, well, I can just, just, let's just look at two experiences um, so my experience of what, especially in the, my, my initial period with Andrew Cohen, which I consider to be, have been in a position of surrender, um, there was passionate, loving, ec ecstatic surrender and a lot of doubt, constantly struggling with um, doubting, doubting him, doubting myself, doubting what was happening and, 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 and resisting it and not accepting it. So that's, that's like on the one hand an expression, uh, uh, I, would, I would think of it as a state of surrender that is not only positive, but also a lot, you know, struggling, struggling with that positive movement. Mm -hmm. And then, to as as a, as a, as the opposite example, I I uh, watched a documentary 
which about uh, the rise of Nazism in Germany in the 30s. And, and they interviewed these two women who were in a youth movement uh, at the time. And, and they told about their experience when um, Hitler came to visit their town. And they worked for days and nights preparing, you know, the, the main street for the parade of his arrival. And what an ecstatic, joyful, I mean, they, they, they were in tears and their eyes were sparkling as they were describing that incredible experience they had of surrendering to something which now we say was like a horrible, uh, you know, bad, bad event. Um, I think they had less doubt at the time when they were, when they were giving their all to, to preparing for uh, Hitler's arrival they had they struggled with less doubt than I did in my surrender to what was happening for me in the presence of Andrew. In fact, so, they had they had no doubt, right? <laughs> well, maybe, maybe I don't know. May um, you know that was like that was like a long time ago. So time changes to kind of. But 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 that but but in a way, it, what it, happened? Well, I mean, the the thing here is, and it and it works in terms of spiritual teachers too. Well, there's an attraction to this pairing of submission and surrender, which is um, to um, align yourself with something powerful, and and that can be a, that can be a high, that can be absolutely yeah. it can be a high, and you don't even have to know how to make the distinction between submission and surrender. In the, at that moment, it seems to me. So for these women, they they were high in a kind of way, not because they thought, oh, thank God Hitler's going to enact this ideology or something like that. They were, you know, they were serving something that they considered to be greater than their own egoic needs and creating conditions and aligning themselves and it was a high, yes. you know. No doubt. Um, and 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 same same for you, when you were uh, no doubt as 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 it was for me. I mean, I had this one moment where I decided. Well, I mean, in retrospect, and I really appreciate that you brought that this up. It's easy to make these distinctions in our experience in retrospect, but um, you know. I don't know, the first year that I met my teacher, I, I decided I was going to, what I now realize, I decided I was going to try to submit myself fully to the, to the work, to the spiritual practice. And I, and I made, made this gesture of, of uh, moving my body to a certain place. And, you know, and it was, and I realized in retrospect, oh, that was just me trying to submit. And, um, and at first it felt powerful. And then when nothing happened, <laughs> it was a big deflation. <laughs> so, um, but that wasn't surrender. I can say in retrospect, well, it's interesting. As you say that, it makes me think submission has a manipulative quality to it. When we submit, we're actually trying to control things. Yeah. I, again, I actually, I, 
I think it's really important to try to make, to, to see, to experientially make the distinction between the experience of surrender and submission. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So that so that you know so that people can make that distinction in real time as it, as they are experiencing it, and 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 avoid bad situations. So so well, bra- bravo if your Living Transcendence project yeah. enables <laughs> even one person to be able to do that better. That's really <laughs> yes. <laughs> so, that's so, a wonderful ambition. <laughs> there's a notion that um, comes up in the fourth way of uh, conscious suffering, and one form of that uh, that Gurdjieff speaks about is the willingness to endure the displeasing manifestations of another being towards oneself. And when I think about the qualities of conscious suffering, there's a there's an intention, there's resistance, there's kind of the uh, standing firm in the resistance. Occasionally, there's a uh, uh, a sort of a transcendental spark when uh, energy is transformed in the process. And I, and I wonder, you know, to some extent, I look at the words you used to describe your relationship with Andrew was one that was, uh, uh, had elements of conscious suffering because it was not, it was not easy, but something, there was a, an intention that was being played out and you stayed in the presence. And that's why when I use the term, like Mariana's term of conscious, you know, uh, uh, discipleship, there's an intentional quality to surrender. And it requires an ongoing uh, reaffirmation, because it's not necessarily an easy process. Well, I think I think we we agree that it would be incredibly valuable if we can make the distinction between surrender and submission on the phenomenological experiential level. That that it could save a lot of people, a lot of pain and heartbreak, I... and a lot, of, a lot of bad things in the world. You know, I mean, you you see it. The, you look at the effect that Hitler and Stalin you know, uh, had, had on the world, and, and you see how, how much could be avoided if people could make that distinction in themselves. I, I agree, and and because um, we're, we're, we're not at the end of our conversation, but we've been going for a while, and you brought up the word devotion, and I want, I, I would love to hear what you have to say about devotion, especially in relation to the, the um, conversation that we've just had about surrender and submission. I actually, I actually, uh, it's a word that I didn't explore as much as as the as the surrender and submission and mm-hmm. obedience. Um, it I, I started thinking about it more since last night when I interviewed this uh, teacher and she used that uh, that term, mm-hmm. and I started wondering about you know what it meant. Um, so it seems to me that it's it is related to surrender in 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 the sense that it has a quality of love and of um, would you say that there is a certain element of admiration and i don't 
admiration uh, is not. Is, yeah. uh, let me, uh, the word that's co- that's coming up for me is praise. Praise. Uh-huh. Praise. A, um, uh, that's a good praise one. that which is greater than oneself. To praise, you know, I mean, we, we, we praise one another when we often when we see someone acting selflessly or generously mm. or um, in some way that, that goes beyond our usual egoic expectations as projected onto others. Well, can we, can we say that devotion is more of an uh, internal, subjective, emotional state and surrender wants to be expressed in action in the world and in, in how you because hmm. that that's that's a connotation for me i realize that that um there's something very attractive about the concept of surrender to me because it's it uh, wants to be expressed it mm-hmm. doesn't only want me to experience surrender mm-hmm. i want i want to live out yeah. A surrendered life. So there's something about uh, wanting to be used. I mean, I know, I know this sounds like masochism, but wanting no, to be used. No, no, not, no it, not if God's using yeah, you. But that's, 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 that's ecstasy. <laughs> but I mean, you know, uh, uh-huh. I can be devoted to a teacher, but not surrendered to a teacher. Okay. If I'm surrendered to the teacher, then I'm going to do what the teacher says. Okay. And okay. and that will often be uh, move me against modes of resistance in myself. So devotion may support me in my intention to surrender. Uh, I don't know that I would say it's necessary, but uh, it is certainly helpful. And but I, there, the, I agree with you that surrender is uh performative or it's an action it's an expression whereas devotion is a uh an emotion or an energy uh a movement of my attention i'm not sure i agree with the two of you on this one um, but I'm, but but I, the trouble is, I don't have a better. I don't have a better. Way I mean, it's it's relative. I mean, the language expression. is relative anyway. I mean, I think that I think that whether you like the use of the word, uh, there is a no, no. Uh, it's not the it's not the word. It's it's what it evokes in me. Oh. Um, so I I had this, you know, at least moderately intense Roman Catholic background as a child. I think in our previous conversation with you, Amir, I. I mentioned this uh, very early um, uh, powerful experience in a, in a, in a church at age like three or four. And, and, and then I was incredibly dis as, as my childhood went on, I was incredibly disappointed over the years in what was evoked in me um, later in that, in that context. But but I think it's probably that early experience that um, that leads me to seek not just a, an internal feeling, but I think something like this quality of active um, giving of myself to something greater 
in the way that you were describing surrender. I'm not sure I'm as happy with separating it as much as Stuart was just was just describing. Separating. Uh, surrender and devotion. Huh. Um, because um, emotional, sure. That's a that would be. I don't think you could separate devotion from emotion. That is, have devotion without emotion. But I don't think it's only um, an emotional manifestation. And I'm just flying off the cuff here. I, I actually, I don't know. The reason I asked you is because I want to know more. I want to know more about what devotion is because I read poetic, beautiful things expressing devotion or claiming to express devotion. And, um, and yet I'm st I still have the yearning to experience devotion unmediated um, by a particular experience, I guess. Rob, do you think that, that one's devotion can be tested in the same way that surrender can be tested? I think that's a fabulous question that I have never considered. I don't know the answer to that question. But I, I really am grateful to you for asking it because, um, well, I guess uh, now, now that what's coming up for me is that, is that, you know, my teacher was incredibly important to me and powerful and I f fought like hell against all um, the powerful and useful things he um, experiences he gave me to help me let go of a lot of the uh, emotional, intellectual, and even physical cramps that I had in my body. Um, and, you know, I came to see at times that he was still a human being and had flaws. And, and um, so maybe this, I'm answering my own yearning here a little bit because I'm realizing that in retrospect over the years, at those moments when I contemplate moments of pain for me, when I felt um, not seen by him, both on an on a ordinary human level, but also perhaps on a, on a transcendent level, moments when I thought he'd you know, dropped something, as it were, um, that the devotion is in some ways about forgiving him for being human, as I forgive myself for being human, or try to. And, um, and, I, and, and when, it, when all the dust settles, I remain devoted to him because of what I received from him. And maybe the devotion can hold all the incredible utility and good along with those, uh, uh, when the ball got dropped. Mm -hmm. hmm. So that's just, that's just me off the cuff.
That's beautiful. That's beautiful. Thank you. But that is the devotion being tested. Yeah, no, that's why, and that's why it came up. I think because you asked that, you asked that question. I think that's that's that's. I really have to meditate on this more. Yeah, me too. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, that's why uh, a good question is better than ten thousand great answers. Well, can you can you uh, maybe a different way of looking at it? At can you surrender without being devoted? I don't know. Maybe they are tied in a certain line of way. Well, it depends. I think I think then we have to make a distinction between different contexts because, for example, you know, people use the term surrender also in surrendering to reality hmm. um, or hmm. to or to uh, an artistic impulse, a creative impulse, or to one's authentic self. So I wouldn't, I wouldn't use the, the term devotion mm. in relation to reality or to uh, the artistic creative impulse or to one's authentic self, but I would use the term surrender in those contexts. Yeah. So, so maybe the key word here is love. Devotion is about, or, or is expressed through the medium of love, or through the uh, uh, connection that love engenders. Well, yeah. yeah well, or surrender to a teacher um, requires a devotion or a love to be present. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That maybe, uh, as you said, I mean that that helps maintain the the uh, or, or re re um, establish the surrendering, mm. even mm. when the conflicts in that surrender sometimes reach uh, uh, high high proportion. <laughs> I had a lot of conflicts. Yeah. <laughs> Well, I think I think this is this is a very uh, it's an important conversation and important distinctions yeah. that we're trying to make, and and I like the fact that we're trying to make those distinctions not just theoretically, so that we can improve you know what's written in the dictionary, right. but we we're trying to look into our own experience and and be able to describe it from within. Yeah. Uh, which is a lot more valuable than, than, than changing the world, the, the definition of the word in the dictionary. Yeah. So we're working on your project as we Absolutely. speak here. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> well, I mean, in that sense, I, I, I want to say, I want to use the opportunity and say that this is, I feel this is not, in some important ways, this is not my project. I'm, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm, I'm playing mm-hmm. a role in, the, in, in, in this movement of exploration and, and interest and deepening and 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 it's not really mine i feel moved mm-hmm. by you know whatever is moving me in this research is not doesn't belong to amir freiman mm-hmm. i mean amir freiman belongs to it and 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 in that sense i feel you know that 
when I experience the two of you, I feel that you are motivated by the same kind of recognition or mm -hmm. maybe we could use even the word surrender to something mm -hmm. which is greater than ourselves. Mm -hmm. Sure, I'll, I'll, I'll sign up to that. Right. Yeah. I mean, again, I think of uh, uh, Lee Lozowick's uh, formulation of uh, learning to be a slave of God. Yes. That, you know, that the ultimate surrender is to uh, uh, the all that is. And that's what our practice ultimately is about. Well, I, 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 I have two lines that I love from a poem by, um, by a Jewish-Spanish uh, poet, philosopher, and physician. I think 11th or 12th century, Rabbi Yehuda uh, Levi. And he, and I, uh, it's, the slaves of time are slaves of slaves. The slave of God, the slave of God alone is free. <laughs> so he, to me, this is a beautiful distinction between being a slave of time and being a slave of God. You are a slave, whatever, you know, no matter, no matter what, you are serving something. So the question is not, do I want to be a slave or not? The question is, am I serving everything that's created in time and by time? Or am I a slave of the infinite, ineffable, vertical dimension? I don't know if our, he'll, he'll, he'll appreciate it as much as I am at the moment, but we have a friend in the Tibetan tradition who's, uh, who's, um, who loves the word mysticism and, and, and understands what he's been up to in his life and other people that he, whose work he respects as being mystics. But I think um, a slave of God is, one, is certainly one, uh, one nice way to express the mis uh, or define the mystic. Yeah. Yeah. It's sweet. Hmm. It's, it's ironic because I've just, you know, here in America, we're having we're having this this uh, political moment when the the um, the status of people who are descended from slaves is being examined in a way that people have cried out for for the last hundred and fifty years, and now to a much deeper extent than has been true in the past, that's actually starting to happen mm -hmm. among people, uh, some of whom uh, have slave-owning ancestors or had slave-owning ancestors. Well, what do you, do you feel that that has, um, obviously that has a social and political and economical uh, connotations or dimensions, does it have a spiritual dimension, that kind of uh, looking into slavery uh, uh, from, from, from a spiritual uh, perspective? There's a spiritual perspective, I see, to the extent that you know, one character of spiritual work is to peel back the illusions that we are identified with and 
this process is one of peeling back many layers of very comfortable narratives that certain parts of society has fed itself and in feeding itself has allowed itself to lose connection with the lived experience of other members of society. Yeah. And in that sense, I think that it is spiritual to the extent that someone is willing to uh, look within themselves and to challenge the uh, narratives that uh, one has uh, consumed quite unconsciously in being raised in a particular socioeconomic sector in the society. And it's not spiritual to the extent that people are in reaction to that process one way or the other, you know, and <clears throat> that reactivity is, you know, you'll find on either side of the, uh, the conversation. I think, I, I don't know the answer to this, to the question I asked, but I, I think it has something to do with Martin Buber's I thou and I it mm. yes. uh, relationship. Yes. Because to enslave somebody basically means that you relate to him or her as it, as an object at your service. Yeah. And there is no way of having an ideal relationship with a slave, with somebody that you relate to as, as your slave. Right. And, and that carries over to the uh, fraction, fractioning of uh, the civic conversation in this country where there are uh, the other side, whether they're liberals or conservatives or... Uh, 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 white supremacists or, uh, uh, you know, activists, you know, there's a very strong tendency right now to objectify the other. Mm. And to the extent, and that is, that is enslaving someone ultimately is to objectify because, uh, you cease to be a person and you become an object and it can be that objectification to, can take place at a uh, mental level and it can take place at a lived out physical level uh, but uh, it's an objectification nonetheless mm -hmm. and that's something that to the extent that we can move past that uh, I would I have high hopes for the possibility we're interviewing someone on Sunday uh, uh, who does a lot of work on non-violence and uh that's the core, that, that intuition is the core of the work of nonviolence. It's learning to relate to the other as thou and not it. The other, the other thing, because we're running out of time here, but I, but I want to make sure to add this to this skein of the, um, this thread of the conversation is, um, is that uh, to be a slave of God is, is a choice. In fact, it's a um, um, it's something. It's a choice that has to be constantly recreated, moment by moment, and that's not what's happening in the in the um, discussion of human slavery and chattel um, that that 
that we've just been pointing to. And, um, and so that's, that's really important. God doesn't make slaves of us in the way that humans make slaves of one another. And Stuart was just pointing to this to a subtle way in which we enslave each other um, by objectifying one another. So, um, I mean, that's a, that's a, a subtler form uh, than cracking the whip, but, um, but nevertheless, it is, it is also a work of violence. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It is a common form of violence. Yeah, so, so what, what you are really saying is that if we really care for each other, and, 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 and specifically for each other's spiritual being or soul, then we want we don't want to force anything on them. We want we want that choice to come from the deepest place that we can recognize in ourselves and which is the same deepest place in them. Yeah. Well put. And that's a that's uh, a great place to conclude this lovely conversation. So thank thank you, Amir, for, again for uh, a wonderful <laughs> conversation. Thank you very much. It's been a lot of fun, and we look forward to our next conversation because there are topics we didn't get to this time. I'm sure that we'll find some. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. You have been listening to The Mystical Positivist. This is your host, Stuart Goodnick. This week on the show, we featured a pre-recorded conversation with Amir Freiman, author of Spiritual Transmission, Paradoxes and Dilemmas on the Spiritual Path, and a doctoral researcher on living transcendence, a phenomenological study of spiritual masters. We discussed living transcendence and the nature of spiritual surrender. Next week on The Mystical Positivist, we present a pre-recorded conversation with Michael Nagler, founder of the Meta Center for Nonviolence in 1982. The Meta Center provides educational resources on the safe and effective use of nonviolence, with the recognition that it's not about putting the right person in power, but awakening the right kind of power in people. The Meta Center advances a higher image of humankind while empowering people to explore the questions, how does nonviolence work, and how can I actively contribute to a happier, more peaceful society? As Professor Emeritus of Classics and Comparative Literature at UC Berkeley, Michael co-founded the Peace and Conflict Studies program. His books include the Search for a Nonviolent Future, a Promise of Peace for Ourselves, Our Families, and Our World, The Nonviolence Handbook, a Guide for Practical Action, and The Third Harmony, Nonviolence, and the New Story of Human Nature. He is a student of Eknathaswaran, who founded the Blue Mountain Center of Meditation, and he has lived at the center's ashram in Marin County, California, since 1970. Tune in for that show on Saturday, July 18th from 4 to 6 p.m. Pacific Daylight Time. Thank you again for joining us for The Mystical Positivist. Podcasts of all our shows can be found at www.mysticalpositivist.blogspot.com as well as commentary and discussion of topics of interest to the show. Also, please send comments and feedback to mysticalpositivist at gmail.com. Join us again next Saturday. 